Our reading this morning is from the first epistle of Peter, the first chapter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers but with the precious blood of Christ, as the lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through faith, through him, believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, 
through the word of God, which lives and abides forever, because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word by which the gospel was preached to you. The word of our Lord. Several years ago, when I was growing up in Jackson County, the Reformed Church in America had a camp up there called Anvil Institute. It's a nice little camp. They had uh, Bible studies there. They had vacation Bible school, that sort of thing. Uh, I'm not sure how big it is, but it's fairly large. Being large, it has a fairly significant fencing system around it that needs to be maintained, and generally speaking, the fences were not maintained real well. Our minister at the time uh, noticed that one particular part of the fence was busted down, and he called maintenance and said, this fence needs to be repaired, and nobody came for a couple days. And so Jim, this big, burly Dutchman, six-foot-four giant of a man, uh, took off his shirt, got his tools, and went out and repaired the fence. And while he was doing that, he developed an audience. There was a small boy, Jim told me, he thinks he's about six or seven years old. A kid was watching him while he was working on the fence, just with big old wide eyes, and Jim tried to say, hello, how are you doing, in his booming Dutch voice, and the kid didn't respond. But finally, the kid began to talk, and he said, I really just can't believe it. And Jim said, what can't you believe? He said, I can't believe it. My daddy is a Baptist minister, and he said, you reform ministers don't work for a living, but here you are. I just can't believe it. Jim got a chuckle out of that, but there is a certain wince that you have to have to it because you know, it kind of hits a little close to home. Um, I personally can feel just a little wince there. Growing up, I was not given to being much of a laborer myself. The truth is, my mind was in books and other things, and when my grandfather would take me out and put me to work with him doing things like restringing barbed wire and such, I was an absolute terrible workman. My mind, my heart was elsewhere on the things of my own interest, and my activities was sluggish to the point where Grandpa basically was more handicapped by having me there than actually getting work done. Uh, the truth is, I had the cart before the horse, though. The things that were on my mind were mine to have. I should have rejoiced in the fact that they were waiting for me back at the house and focused on the work at hand, the digging of the post holes or the putting in of the barbed wire. Uh, business before pleasure, you know, although my 14-year-old self didn't know it at all and I was not a good laborer. The reason why I'm going on about labor and building fences and that sort of thing is because uh, the apostle begins by telling us that we are to, quote, gird up our mind. 
Now, the mind is a reference to what's going on internally, the thought process. But to gird up your mind is a little bit of an archaic way of talking. When we get down to working, when we respond to the duties of life and become a diligent laborer, we tend to use phrases like, I'm going to put my nose to the grindstone, or I'm going to put my shoulder to the wheel. That's how we talk. But in ancient days, if you said, okay, now it's time, you've got to get to work, there's labor to be done, and so we're going to have to go out and do the labor, you would say, it's time to gird up our loins. You're tending to wear a robe of some fashion. It's really not very easy to work in a robe. And so when it's time to get to work, when it's time to fix the fence or to plant the crops, you have to gird that rope up. You got to tie it off at the side so that now it doesn't bind your legs because now it's time to labor. Well, if you notice at the beginning of verse 13 and running for a couple of verses, the focus of the sermon is from 15 to 21. The apostle has been talking about the glories that we have waiting for us. We have an inheritance incorruptible. It is waiting with the Lord Jesus Christ. When the Lord Christ comes, we will receive this inheritance. It will be salvation. Everything that we have ever desired will be given to us. But now Peter turns and begins to say, that's waiting for us in the evening. Here, we have to get to work. Gird up your minds, be sober, get to laboring. There is a job before you, and it is a job much like the labors that I was assigned with my grandfather. My grandfather had taken me out to work at his side, effectively to work as his apprentice, to teach me all those things that now I kind of wish I knew. Um, in Peter's writing, we are laboring with our father, which is exactly what Grandpa was doing. He was treating me like an apprentice. God is treating us like an apprentice. God has work to be done. The day has come to labor. God is here to labor. And ultimately, just like my grandfather really strung the fence, I didn't string the fence, at the end of the day, it's going to have been God who strung the fence and did his work. God calls us out to labor at his side, and he is going to adjudge the work because he's training our hands. He is going to look over what we do and say, is this good labor or is this bad labor? We have heard all about the wonders, the glories that God has for us, but we are to be earthly-minded. It is true that if we are not heavenly-minded, we can't be any earthly good, but we are to be earthly-minded. There is a kingdom to be built. There is labor in the Lord with the Lord to be done. And at the end of the day, our Father will adjudge our work. Peter says now, if you are working before this father, a father who judges impartially and is going to judge, he is going to look at what we do. 
then you should conduct your work here, your life here in fear, because this process is serious. God is doing something very significant, and he is bringing us into it. You are to labor with him. You are with your father doing actual work. It's time to get her done, as the comedian would say. Since the fall, work has not been as pleasant as it might be. It's a significant point of fact that before sin came into the world, man was assigned labor. There is nothing of the curse that you labor. And in fact, there is every good reason to believe that throughout eternity, God will be glorified in our labor. That's not a bad thing. But in the fall, we read this going back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 3, verse 17 to 19. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Well, the apostle has prepared us for this call to work by reminding us that in this spiritual labor, it's not that different. We have already heard him say, having talked about the glories, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, having been much, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's no hiding the fact that this labor God has called us to may include those things. It may be necessary, it may be required, that there be various trials and difficulties, but that is part of working in this world. It's true on the spiritual level as any other. And we are to glory in what is to come at the end of the day. All those things Peter has told us about already. To do this, we have to be holy. Peter quotes Leviticus and reminds us that God has said, you be holy because I am holy. What does holiness have to do with labor? Well, quite a lot, really, especially considering that Peter begins by saying, gird up not your loins, gird up your mind. Half of labor is internal. It's in the mind. It's in the attitude. It's in the will to do the labor. We are to have a holiness of mind, and we are to be sober there is a separation that has to be made if we are going to rightly work. 
it is a separation that will cut us off from what we were before we were called to this field. Peter says this holiness that God requires to be useful means that you are going to stop being what you used to be. The way he puts it is we are to be obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts. What are the former lusts? Well, they're the way you used to think, the way you used to live. It's the life you knew before called to the field, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance. Right hands require right minds, and right minds have to be holy to the Lord. And we don't start off that way in this life. I had a dear friend by the name of Fuchs Truitt who uh, utterly hated Calvinism, but whatever it was he hated, he didn't really have a good idea of what it was because he was convinced that we taught that God has an elect group of people who are saved. It's not that they are ever lost. It's they find out they're saved, and that's wonderful. Uh, he viewed us as some sort of Gnostic sect, finding out that we were a different race. And that is totally not who we are. Anyone who belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ was at one time a lost person. We were as lost as the day is long. If we were to have died before the grace of God took hold of us, we would have gone to hell as any other person because we were worthy of that. The Apostle Paul reminds Christians in Ephesus of what we were before being called into the Lord's field and family. He writes, And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. Paul says, that's you, that's me, that's us without Christ. We were lost as the day is long. And now when Peter writes to us and says, you have been given this glorious promise, it's all waiting for you at home at the end of the day, but now you labor, he says, you have to stop thinking like that. You have been delivered from that. The grace of God has saved you from that. But that doesn't mean that your thinking is going to follow suit. It is a matter of sanctification that you are holy to the Lord in your mind. You have to say no to what you used to be. And you have to say no to what your forefathers were and what your fathers are. There's a lot of uh, debate in scholarly circles about whether Peter wrote this letter primarily to Jewish people or to Gentile people. 
Um, it's very hard to put your finger on the answer to that. But at the end of the day, it kind of doesn't matter. Peter looks at us, whether we are Jewish or Gentile, and says, you came from people who followed a tradition of life, a way of life, that was outside of the kingdom of God, and your fathers are lost people. Somebody has to be generation zero. You may not be generation zero. You may be the covenant children of believing parents. But the people whom Peter is writing to here are primarily generation zero. And Peter looks them in the eye and says, your forefathers were lost, damned souls. We are told in scripture we are to honor our father and our mother, and that is absolutely true. But it is true in a patriarchal system, a system of fathers, higher fathers above higher fathers. We are to honor our parents, but our highest father is our Lord. And if our forefathers and if our father is outside of the faith, there is nothing against the commandments of God to admit that and to live in that light. I have known so many people who have struggled with the fact that God's grace extends to them, but it has not yet extended to a father, a mother, or a son, or a daughter. And they grow angry at God and say, how can you do that? Why, why would you do that? Uh, I want all of my family to be saved people. Well, that is a wonderful desire. And we are called to share the gospel with all men. And certainly if to all men, the closest men to us are those in our immediate family. But we must be realistic about things. If our parents are unsaved people, they are unsaved people. And it is idolatrous to hold them higher than God. It is idolatrous to hold son or daughter higher than God. And Peter looks us in the eye and says, if you are going to be faithful to the Lord in his field, if you are going to work the works of God that you've been called to do, uh, you have to put aside the way you thought and you have to put aside the life your fathers handed to you. There is nothing holy about something that is against the will of God. There is nothing special about family if it is against the will of God. And Peter says it bluntly. Your fathers handed on to you a tradition that will leave you outside the kingdom. You must be holy of mind and put that aside. And you must put aside what the world in this very moment doesn't put aside. Peter doesn't say that directly here, but he does say it a couple chapters later. Peter turns again to this theme in chapter 4, and he says, For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness, 
lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they, that is the people of the world around us, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. If you would be useful to your father, if you would learn at his side, if you would be a good apprentice, you are called to holiness in mind, which will set you apart and make you stand out like a sore thumb. They think it's strange, says Peter, and how can they not? They are used to a certain culture and a certain way of life. This is the way things are supposed to work. And if you are holy to God in your mind, if you are given to the soberness that the word calls us to, uh, you are going to not fit in. And that is a good thing, and Peter says you should do that, which is exactly the opposite of what Big Eva tells you this very moment. Big Eva has a huge bullhorn shouting to everyone in the pew, you must be winsome to the world, you must fit into the world, you must be as exactly like the world as possible, because after all, didn't Paul say, I will be all things to all men? You must labor to be as much like the world as possible. Whereas the apostles of Christ say, you are to be holy. What is it to be holy but to be set apart, to be separated, to be stamped with the master's pure ownership and said, this is not for uh, common use. This is for sacred use. This is different. It is 100% opposite. Now, when Paul says, I will be all things to all men, there is certainly a truth to that. That is the very word of God. But it doesn't mean that you will be unholy. There is nothing in scripture that calls you away from holiness. Peter says there is work to be done in the field. Be holy in your minds. Be separate in your minds. Stand out because the average person is not working in the field. Have, have you ever seen that meme where You've got like 20 workers and all of them are standing around except the one guy labeled Ted and he's the one doing all the work. Well, that's kind of the way the world is. You're Ted. God has called you to labor. All these people around you are living lives that are not laboring with their father. They are different than you. Do you expect to be like them? You've been called to be a laborer in the field. You are to be holy in your mind. You are to be set apart. It probably, to a apprentice, doesn't feel like a blessing to be put to work. But the truth is, there is some payment taking place for that apprentice to be an apprentice. And it is really being paid by the master who has invited the apprentice into his life and business. He is training him. But the truth is, if you are apprenticing somebody, it's actually harder on you than easier. It would be much easier to do it yourself. But 
your son who comes along, who knows nothing about that engine you're working on, will make it far more complicated to fix it, but it is good for him that he labors with you. So you put up with it, you pay the price. For some apprenticeships, there is even a price where you have to buy the right to be the apprentice. Peter speaks of prices. He says, you've been brought into the field to labor, and he says you should consider the labor that you're doing, the quality of it. Your, your father is going to judge it, but he doesn't say what you should really fear is that judgment, as if the father were truly a stern and overly uh, demanding type fellow. Rather, he tells us you should fear to consider your work because you have been redeemed. There's been a price paid for you to now be where you're at. This, this calling of yours has been paid for, and it's been paid for by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. You couldn't be holy from the world. You couldn't stand out. You couldn't be laboring in the heat of the day with your father. If you hadn't been bought from slavery, you were a slave of the devil. You were laboring. It may not have felt quite like it, but you truly were. You were laboring as a slave. Now a price has been paid for you to be in this field, the blood of our Lord Christ, which means this labor with our father, he paid for that with that. Consider the value of that payment. In the Heidelberg Catechism, when you get to kind of the first third, uh, there's a section where you're asked, why does the Redeemer of God's elect have to be both human and divine? And the answer that you find there is true. It is effectively that he has to be human because only humanity can pay for what humanity has done. But he also has to be divine because he has to be infinitely strong enough to stand up under the infinite wrath of God. That's, that's the answer of the Heidelberg Catechism. Jesus has to be God because only eternal life can withstand eternal wrath. And there's, there's truth in that. I'm not saying the Catechism is wrong by any means. But when I read Athanasius on the Incarnation, he took it in a different direction, and they're not mutually exclusive. These are things that complement one another. Athanasius said, why did Christ have to be eternal God? Well, quite frankly, the sins of humanity is an awful, awful debt. In the Psalms, we're told even if one man were perfect— he would only be able to redeem another because one man would pay for one man. It would be value for value. But our Lord Christ buys the entirety of God's elect throughout all time and space. Who knows the number that is the elect of God? Millions, billions perhaps. Who can say? Christ paid for all of them. 
How can that be? Well, put frankly, God is worth a lot. The Lord Jesus Christ is eternal God. He is worth more than all of creation put together. He is an overpayment, really, because his value is infinite. He is not only infinitely tough, he is also infinitely of value. The Father was with the Son, and they were in mutual fellowship before the beginning of time, a fellowship which was valuable to them beyond what we could possibly ever say. And the Lord God said, I will spend my son to buy them. I will redeem them with the precious blood of Jesus. He will die, and that will pay for them. Consider how valuable that is. And that is what has been spent for you to labor in this field. How can you not, says Peter, consider with fear is the labor of my hands worthy of the calling I've received? Because the calling has been paid for by the blood of Christ. I am not afraid of my father and his judgment. I do not consider him to be a uh, authoritarian, hard man. I consider him to be the most generous he has paid this price for me. Therefore, as I labor in the field beside him, I want it to be the very best work I can do. Because look what he paid. It is our privilege to work with God and to work we have been called. Peter then turns to a, another theme that uh, wasn't quite large enough for its own sermon, but it is a little different than what we've been talking about. He turns in the last couple verses of our section um, and talks about the fact that through Christ, you believe in God. The, the way it reads is this. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. The Apostle Paul says something very similar in the book of Romans as well. He points out that to believe in Christ is to believe in God. So both apostles want us to know, now in Jesus Christ, your faith is in God. 2,000 years after the writing, we are most likely going to read that and go, that's a no duh. Yeah, I got that. I mean, faith in God, sure. Why is it that the apostles emphasize this? Well, there's, there's a blockage between us and them that keeps us from seeing why this would be a problem so that it needs an answer. In the 21st century, we're used to an evangelical church that has taught us again and again and again effectively. They may not use these terms, but they, they effectively teach it. Uh, now, in the New Testament, 
you're saved by faith in God. But in the Old Testament, you're saved by law. And that's not true, but that's what we're taught. We're taught that the Old Testament is effectively a totally different religious system. Uh, God put forth the law at Sinai. People were saved by law keeping. That was a really bad idea. It didn't work real well. Now Jesus has come and we're saved by faith. Well, if you read the New Testament, that's not true at all. The entirety of the book of Galatians, which we went through last year, is about the fact that's not true at all, that the visible church in the Old Testament was effectively under two covenants at once. It was under the Mosaic Covenant, which was instituted at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19 through about 24. But they were also under another covenant that could not be annulled by this covenant. It was the covenant of the promise to Abraham, a promise that Abraham believed. And it was written that Abraham believed God, and that was credited to him for righteousness. That was the essence of that covenant. Nobody 2,000 years ago, uh, well, I won't say nobody because that's, that's part of the issue. 2,000 years ago, there was a raging debate among Jews about how this relationship worked. You had people like the Pharisees who said, if you keep the law, you'll be redeemed. And we meet them in the pages of the Gospels. But there were also others, many, many others, like the Essenes, who had gone out into the desert to wait for the Messiah, who were totally opposed to the Pharisaical way of being religious, who emphasized, as much as you or I, that salvation was a matter of believing God. They would have emphasized Abraham believed God, and that was credited to him for righteousness. The New Testament says you believe in God. That's credited for righteousness. Well, you're a first century Jew, and you're told have faith in Jesus of Nazareth, and you are someone who has been faithful. You have been faithful to the covenant. You are not Pharisaical. You're not trying to be saved by works. You believe in faith. You might say, well, if I am to believe in Jesus of Nazareth, doesn't that keep me from putting my faith in God the Father? Because Abraham believed God, right? He didn't believe Jesus. He believed God. So you're telling me to believe in Jesus of Nazareth. Well, how does that gel? I'm supposed to have faith in God. And so Peter addresses that, and he says you need to understand Jesus and the blood that was spilled in Christ is what God has always been doing. It's what God did. Your faith is in God because it's in Jesus of Nazareth. This is what God has always been calling you to have faith in. It's the act of God through the gift of God, the deliverance of God in the blood of his son. Don't worry. We're not telling you to have faith in something different. We are telling you to have faith in God because this is what God's doing. And so Peter assures us your faith is in God when it is in the blood of his son. Because your father, who has called you to holiness, 
paid that price. It is his act, so your faith is in God. We have a remarkable uh, joy waiting for us at the end of the day. Blood has been spilled that it could be given to us. But blood has also been spilled that we would labor in this world in holiness to gird up our minds, to put away our former way of thinking, and to labor with our hands to build the kingdom. And the gift of God in what is coming and the labor of our hands to build the kingdom are not mutually exclusive. They are, in fact, a perfect set. Let us remember that our faith is in God, and let us rejoice in what we shall receive, and let us, therefore, embrace our holiness, that we might be of use to our master.